Thank you. Well, good morning. If you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to turn to Ephesians chapter 1, and we're going to try to stay in Ephesians. I reference a few other scriptures this morning. Um, We're going to spend uh, quite a few weeks in this book of Ephesians, and as last week I talked about the the importance of this little epistle, especially the importance of it now. And so this morning, we're going to look at um, salvation really from God's perspective. But before we get there, there's some introductory comments. And and I, I guess I also want to make just a few other comments. Um, I, I don't intend to get done with this message. Uh, if I do, that would be by the grace of God or I just fail. Um, and number two, uh, we are standing um, this morning looking at one of the greatest texts in, in all of Christendom. Uh, this is a magnificent text. This is a, one of the most... Um, <clears throat> As a matter of fact, Martin Luther said, as I mentioned last week, Romans is the most important document. And if he said, if Romans is the most important document in the New Testament and and it's the purest form of the gospel, uh, Martin Lloyd Jones, Dr. Martin Lloyd Jones, and I would commend you, he's a uh, pastor from um, now with the Lord, but he preached in England during the 1900s. He said, if Romans is the purest explanation of the gospel, Ephesians is, is the most sublimest. And, and I, I looked up that word sublime, and it means exalted or awe-inspiring or elevated or awesome. As a matter of fact, Martin Lloyd-Jones said that, if, that the book of Ephesians is the most majestic statement of the gospel. We see Paul this morning, as David read uh, the first six verses, uh, we see Paul beginning to be caught up with what he believes about the gospel, about this salvation that he had come to know. We see Paul getting excited about how God made it possible to be saved and redeemed and how that Jesus was everything to him. And we see Paul getting carried away with the grace of God. This morning, as we look at this great panoramic view of salvation from the perspective of the Apostle Paul here in Ephesians, it is from a text that is indeed glorious. As a matter of fact, if you look from verse 3 to verse 14, as you have your Bibles, you, you will see that it is one sentence. That's the way I write, one complete run-on sentence. It's almost as if Paul's challenging the, the rules of grammar. We see that the Apostle Paul's writing a letter to a group of people at the, in the place of Ephesus. He had a relationship with them. He loved them. They loved him. We can see that back in Acts. And we see that as he begins to write this letter, as he begins to pen these words, he gets swept away in a doxology. That's how we began the service. Today we are going to bookend our worship service with the doxology and the glory of Patre. Those are just big words meaning first a song about praise to the glory of God. That's how we begin. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. We are here this morning to praise God 
from whom all blessings flow. And then we're going to end by glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit or the Holy Ghost. Because this is a world without end. And in essence, that's what Paul is doing. He's being swept away. And and I I, want to ask us this morning, as I have pondered the words of of Ephesians for several weeks now, and God really has put me through the ringer in a good way, that's the way Tim Dillingham would say it, God's really wrenched me through with these words, and I just wonder, when's the last time you've been swept away by God and by His glory and by His grandeur? It's not in my notes, but... Um, I'm a country music fan, and I'm sorry, that's, my, that's still the thing that God's trying to redeem in my life and sanctify me, but I'm still a, a country music fan. And, and there's a contemporary group, you may or may not like him, it really doesn't matter, that's not the point. There's a, there's a contemporary group, a uh, country music group called Dan and Shay, and they, they have a song that's, that's a, a love song. And it's, it's basically of a guy seeing a girl, and, and the song is really about when, when he sees her, He's speechless. He's speechless. I'm, I'm sure how David saw Julie 40 years ago on this day. He just, there she stands in that dress, and, and he's speechless. He, she takes his breath away. And, and you know, I, I like the song, and it's a little mushy even for a guy. And I'm like, and there's another song. Um, I, I can't, it's either Eric Church or Luke Bryant that, that it says, again, a man talking about a woman, when God whispered your name, right? Who sings that? Come on, no other country music fans in the whole church? I think it's Eric Church, if not, listen to it. <clears throat> but basically what he's saying is, when God whispered your name, I just, I just got carried away. That's, that's the song, that's not the verses. But, and, I, and I'm thinking about this, those two songs as, as I'm setting up here. <clears throat> And I thought if we could have those kind of songs about human relationships, what kind of song is contained here in the first chapter? It's really not even the point of the message this morning, but it's, it's, it's contained in the parenthetical understanding that, that this is the praise that Paul swept away. And if a woman can get a guy excited, or if a man can, can take the breath of a woman away, How much more could this great God that we're here to worship this morning? I can't use sports analogies, but at this point in time, I would have talked about gathering for a sporting event, how thousands of people would be cheering on their team. And the very first point of the message this morning is just simply this. I tried to find a way to alliterate it, to plan it, but it's just very simply this. The very first point I want to communicate to us this morning by God's help is just simply this, God. It's the first point. God, look at, look, at, look at Paul. Look at the third verse. If you still have your Bibles open, keep them open. He says, blessed be the God. And then he begins to start to unpack who this God is, his glory and his greatness and his goodness and the grandeur of this God This is a God that Paul begins to try to describe and he completes the greatest run-on sentence in the history of mankind. And at the end of it, it's almost as if he drops his pen and lays down the scroll and says this, I just can't describe him. He's that majestic and that magnificent. And so this morning, 
The first point is the doctrine of God. Understanding who God is is essential as a believer and followers of Jesus Christ. For a long time in my preaching and in my studies and in my Bible reading and my, my personal one-on-ones, I, I always used to begin with starting with the person. You, do you know you're a sinner and you need to be saved? Or you know you're having anxious thoughts and, and, and here's how you solve it. And, and all of a sudden, this first chapter of Ephesians has, has changed my thinking. And it's been a, really about a, a decade of, of journey. So some of this is my working out my own theology and understanding who this great God is. But the reason I'm starting here is because the very first place we start in the Christian faith or the walk, of our, the walk with Christ is not with ourselves. The very first place we start is with God, with God. We almost need to approach this epistle as, if, as, a, as like Moses was approaching God in Exodus 3 when When he came into the presence of God, God said, This place in which you stand is so holy, you need to remove your sandals. And so this morning we come to a text that is so so majestic and so glorious and so wonderful. A God who is so great and a God who is so magnificent and so indescribable that I hope that you sense and all I can muster up this morning from a human perspective is for all of us to come to understand that we're here because of this great God. It starts with God. <clears throat> you see, we live in a world that we're preoccupied with ourselves. We're myoptic in our understanding, and I have a note here that that means short-sighted. We all are so consumed about everything about us. And if you're sitting there thinking that you're not consumed about everything about you, I just want to challenge you, you're wrong. I could, I could go through your life and just show you how it's, 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 it's in 2020, it's, it's where we're all, it's where we all are. When you talk to someone, they talk about me and my and I, and, and, and I'm as guilty as anybody, so please understand, I'm, I'm talking about my own sin. But this wasn't how it always was, especially in the church. The church was the one place to set aside for hundreds of years where our forefathers were consumed and delighted by the attributes of God, these amazing characteristics of God, and they were what consumed them. That's why they reserved one day a week, the Lord's Day, set aside for worship. That's why they held it in such high esteem. That's why they preached against doing anything else on this day so we could be consumed by this all-knowing, indescribable God. And so this morning, I would... Help us to come to a place where let's, let's stop looking at everything from our perspective and start with this God. You see, there is no, let me just make a simple statement. There is no faith that we worship in this building on this Sunday unless there's a God. We're only here because of God. You're sitting here, I hope, just because of God. You're not here to get something out of the sermon. You're not here to be fed. You're not here to feel good. You're not here to be encouraged. Although I want you to be all those things, and I too want to be all those things. But we are here this morning because God demands our praise. And so, as we look and we talk about this God that I've rattled on for a long time, we come to the sovereignty of God. And here's where we come against one of the great 
one of the great doctrines of the faith. And it, it, it kind of, I'm just going to tell you, it'll kind of take your breath a little bit because not only is God God, but he's also sovereign. Again, leaning on Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, he says that here it stands in all of its glory in this epistle, the sovereignty of God. Because this is what he says. It's here that Paul says that if you are saved, if you know Christ, if you're a follower of Jesus, if God has resonated in your soul that you needed to be saved, it all began with God. God did that. God planned that. God thought of that. It is all because of God's will, nothing that you did. And so as we start thinking about to God, we, we come to this sovereign God. What does it mean to be sovereign? It means to be an eternal being, a creator, who exercises sovereignty over all of creation. As a matter of fact, Dr. Hughes, a guy by the name of Dr. Philip Hughes, says this is the meaning of the term of God. If we speak of God in lesser terms, we speak... We speak of a God and and are speaking instead of a figment of man's imagination, the projection of his arrogance. Martin Luther said, let God be God. If we therefore speak of God, we're speaking of him who's absolutely sovereign. Brothers and sisters, beloved, friends, guests, folks, take great hope. That God is sovereign over all the world this moment. Every detail of your life, God knows. Every detail of your life, God has planned. Everything that's going on in this world is under his control. And that means good and bad. This God, nothing challenges him. Dr. Hughes goes on to say, to challenge the sovereignty of God is inescapably to challenge God himself. In other words... God controls everything, God's in charge of everything, and God makes everything happening. You might be sitting here saying, well, I don't understand that. There's another concept that older I get that I've come to realize. There was a place in my life that I'd want to try to explain everything in Scripture. And I thought if I was given the opportunity to preach, I had to explain it every, down to every letter. But you see, there's an interesting word in our text this morning It's the mystery of his will. It's the mystery of his will. Right here in our text, Paul begins to say there are mysteries. And he uses that word five times in the book of Ephesians. And let me just say this. There are some things about our faith are just mysterious. There are some things I don't understand. And beloved, there are things you'll never understand. God has never intended for us to understand them. Our faith is a great mystery. That doesn't mean we need to check our brains at the door. No, no, no. I believe that Christianity is a thinking man's religion or a thinking person's religion. But one of the great paradoxes that I found about my faith is the more I study about God, the deeper I go in the things of God, I find that he's deeper yet. Again, I'm still on my first point. Just simply, God, this God who's sovereign, this God who's big, and that's the second point, one B, if you will. It's, it's the fact that our God needs to be a big God. There's something that people have started talking about called big God theology. And what they mean by that is our God needs to be big. He needs to be big enough to be sovereign in control of everything else. 
And I got thinking about that, and I've really struggled with this part of the message this morning because I need to stand up here and tell you that I have lived far too long and far too often with a small God who's really not the true God of the Bible. I'm just asking, are you living with a small God too? Now, I'm not saying I'm, I, I don't believe that I'm not saved. I don't believe my salvation's in question. I just believe that sometimes I've been worshiping a small God, the one that's really not God. And let me try to explain a little bit. I don't want to get sidetracked, but I'm afraid that the world has a small God mentality. I'm afraid churches have a small God mentality. I think the reason we encounter life as we encounter, or may I say more clearly, the reason I encounter the, the way of life I do is because I'm actually worshiping this little G God rather than the God who is the God of the universe. You see, when we worship this big God, things change. When we worship this small God, I fret and I worry and I struggle because I begin each day about me. I wake up and look at the world from my perspective. I look at the God I've molded and fashioned. And let me just tell you, if it's a God that Tim Dillingham's molded and fashioned, he's a little God who doesn't have a lot of intelligence because that's who I am. Is anybody with me at all in here? But if I wake up on the morning and say with the Apostle Paul, we're just in verse 3, blessed be the God, this big God, this great God, this glorious God, this God of grandeur, this majestic God, this indescribable God, blessed be this God who made this day that I should rejoice and be glad in it. Blessed be Him. Then who am I to fear? What am I to be anxious about? What am I to worry about the struggles? Because God is in control. Does that mean that we won't have trouble? No. Does that mean I won't get upset? No. Does that mean things won't break? No. Does that mean people won't frustrate me? No. But it really is about this big God that I'm worshiping. And I'm going to try to make, bring it to a point here in a minute. As, as we read this, he says, Blessed be this God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. I talked about that last week a little bit, but it's the first time that we see this, this title what he's saying is, remember how God was described in the Old Testament? He was the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, right? He was this God that, that was a, he, he, was, he was kind of a, a God who always had these, these I, don't, I don't want to say, uh, what, what I'm trying to get to is, here he is, the God, meaning he's, he's relational. He's the God of the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's this personal, intimate, relational God who blesses us. Notice, He blesses us how? In Christ, with every spiritual blessing. Well, there's another one that hit me. People asked me today when I walked in, how, Tim, how are you? And I, 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 I'm usually just a smart aleck. I'm, I'm good, or as best, as best I can be deserved, or okay, or I guess all right, or, you know, how are you? Well, it doesn't matter. Uh, if I told you, I mean, no one wants to listen to me. Well, do you, anybody do that? And struggle. But because I think, because when we think of blessings, we think of big bank accounts and nice homes and great cars and all those things are wonderful and health and, and prosperity and, 
you know, winning state championships or national championships or our horses won the derby. Those are blessings. Or I got a new job or I got a, a bigger raise or, or whatever. We think of those are blessings. And are those blessings? Yes. But are those really the blessings we need to pour in our lives into, Tim? No. What kind of blessings? There are 10 of them I see in the text. I'll list them. The blessing of being elected before the foundation of the world, of being holy, holy and blameless in his sight, predestined as his son, redemption, forgiveness of sins, wisdom, understanding, the sealing of the Holy Spirit. All those are spiritual blessings. And so now we come. I hope I've understood this big God. And so what does this big God done for us? And again, we're talking about salvation. If you look with me with verse 4, he says, Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for the adoption of sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glory, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In the economy of God, I'm using the word economy as in the organization or structure of God, the Apostle Paul says that God the Father has planned our salvation in Jesus. The Christ or the God, Christ or the God-man purchased our salvation. In other words, God planned before the beginning of the world to choose us and, pay, <clears throat> and was going to pay for us the penalty of our sin debt and buy us back from the slave market of sin, Satan himself. God the Holy Spirit is the promissory, the guarantee of this plan. This morning we're focusing on the work of the Father. Now I want to approach this topic carefully and humbly. It's a topic that's going to, maybe some of you agree, and maybe some of you are not going to agree with things I'm going to say here in a moment. But I'm just going to try to preach the Bible. The Bible says in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4, or verse 4 of chapter 1 of Ephesians, the Bible says that He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. In verse 5, it says that He predestined us for adoption. In verse 11, it says that He being predestined according to his purpose. So what does this mean? Dr. Johnson, S. Lewis Johnson of Dallas Theological Seminary and a Believer's Chapel in Dallas, Texas, says this. In verse 4, the word is to choose is rather simple. It means to select. And he uses an illustration that God is it's like going into a, a man going into a store to buy a tie with all those ties there. He, he looks and he finds the right tie and he purchases it out of the hundred other ties that are there. He selected it or he chose it. And so what Dr. Johnson says is what verse 4 means is God has selected those who he has saved before the foundation of the world. He's also predestined us. Now, from that very word, it means to suggest a term of destiny. It's to mark out beforehand a particular goal. 
It's to emphasize the goal and the goal for which you have been chosen or selected. So God, so here's the takeaway. Here's the encouragement for all of us here this morning. And I just want to stop and say this. Because I believe in a big God, because I believe in a sovereign God who's orchestrating all the things of this world together, I believe it's not accidental or coincidental that you're here this morning listening to the gospel message from God's word. I believe that God has you exactly on the sixth day of September 2020 where you should be. I don't know about the rest of the world. That's a mystery to me. It's where I'm just going to assume by faith. But I know that everyone in this room has been singing already. They've listened to prayers already. And now we're in the Word of God. And that God is wanting to communicate these words to you and to me. In verse 4, it says, Before the foundation of the world, God chose those who would be saved. It's a mystery. But I want you to understand that before Adam, before Noah, before Abraham, before there was an exodus, before Jonah was caught up in the belly of a great fish, before all those things, before World War II, before the Civil War, before anything that you could imagine, God chose you. You. God chose you. He thought about you. He planned accordingly for you. How did he do that? Again, let's stay. I'm going to try to stay as close to the text as possible. Look at the end of verse 4 and beginning of verse 5 with me. It says, in love. In love. He predestined or selected us for a goal. What was that goal? To be sons or children of His. So, brothers and sisters, this morning this great and majestic God that Paul was so caught up with and so so enamored with and so swept away with is because of this. I just I don't know if I could stand up here and jump and scream if it would be more have more effect. I don't know if I flailed my arms more than I already do if it would be beneficial. I don't know if I should lower my voice so when you softly speak you people listen in closer. But I want you to hear this. God chose you and selected you because he is really the definition of love. And he loves you knowing you were unlovable. So right there, I, I, I wanted to just take the sermon and go. So I hear people say, well, I don't know if God can love me. And I don't know if he can forgive my sins. And, and all those kind of things. And I've heard him. I said it myself. And sometimes I've run, been driving and just I've heard, I believe it's Satan just whispering, God can't love you. Tim, do you remember when you did this? get this, get this, write it down, underline it in your Bibles. If you're sitting here this morning, God chose you before the beginning of the world, before you were ever conceived by your mom and daddy. He knew you were going to be unlovable and he decided to love you anyway. That's the God who so loved the world. 
That's God's love. Who else in the world loves you in spite of yourself besides Julie loving David that way? And that's only by the grace of God. God loves you knowing you're flawed and frail and have nothing good in you. The Bible says in Romans, there's no, according to Old Testament passage, there's no one righteous, no, not yet one. There's no one good. Well, Tim, are you trying to make me feel bad? No, I'm trying to say to you that Paul's erupting in this doxology about this God who, who loved him when he was running around on his own agenda, trying to kill people, stoning them with his own plan, making havoc on the world. God loved him. And Paul realized this God loved me. And on the road to Damascus, he stopped him. And he said, Paul, or Saul, Saul. And all of a sudden, God was speaking to him. It's the same way it happens to everybody who believes. It happened to me in the middle of Brown County. I was sitting there on a, on a, on a grassy camp, out of the church camp, and I was sitting there, and, and I was in the middle of a field, and, and I just, I don't know how to describe it. It's a great mystery, but I heard God say to me, somehow, you can't live on your grandmother's faith. It's not her faith. You can't live on mom and dad's faith. It's not their faith. Tim, I love you. I want you to come to know me. And I didn't understand it. I was young, just like the young people here. But I heard God, and that's what's happening. And that's how Paul is saying, he's saying this God before the foundation of the world chose to save me. And, and the world gets caught up, and there's a lot of controversy, and, and we talk about the election of God, and does God elect some, not others, and I'm not even going to begin to get in all of that. Because the takeaway this morning is this God chose us and predestined us for a, a relationship with him out of love. I don't understand how it all works. He, he loves us in spite of ourselves. So you're asking, do I believe that God saved me before the beginning of the world based on his love? Yes. Let, let me read to you, whether you like him or not, there's a pastor that's been in the news somewhat uh, lately, Dr. John MacArthur. I just want I found an excerpt of a, of a, a kind of a transcript of his. I just want to read to you what he says. He says, people tell me all the time, do you believe in election? I say, yeah, I believe in the Bible, and the Bible teaches election. You mean you believe that God chooses people to be saved before they're ever born? The Bible teaches that, was MacArthur's response. You believe that before the world ever began, Jesus wrote, Jesus and the Father and the Son wrote down the book of life, those who would be saved, and planned the, holy, the whole thing out? MacArthur, absolutely, I believe that. You say, well, well don't, don't, what about free will, MacArthur? In the first place, free will is not a biblical term. It's never used in the Bible. Man may have a will, but it's not free. And this is profound. It gripped me. He said because it's not free because it's bound to sin. I thought, wow, that's right. My will's bound to sin. So now all of a sudden I see why Paul's erupting in this praise because God set me free from that. Do you believe man has a choice? Absolutely. Do you believe that anybody who wants to can come to Christ? MacArthur, absolutely. But you say there are opposites. MacArthur, absolutely. Do you believe in opposites? Of course. I believe the Bible teaches the sovereignty of God in election. I believe that Jesus said, Him that cometh unto me, I in no way, I am I in no wise what cast out. And I believe Jesus said, Whoever will come, let him come. But those are opposites. MacArthur. That's right. The only way we can ever be resolved in, is in the mind of God. And you see, God has some things that he can do that I cannot. 
and that's fine. Listen, MacArthur goes on, if I understood everything, I'd be God. And if I was God, we would be in lots of trouble. I don't need to resolve it. He says, he goes on, he says, but don't do this. Don't take God's sovereignty and man's choice and try to find middle ground. You'll destroy them both. Leave them alone. Let there be tension. Let God be sovereign. Don't worry, how, don't worry about how to harmonize with people coming to Christ. The problem is, that's his problem, not ours. He just says, come. Does that make any sense to anybody? I knew I wouldn't get through it, and so I want to leave us time to sing. i got a couple minutes. So here's the point I'm trying to make. Here's what I'm trying to say, and I'm doing, I'm doing a poor job of it, but I'm trying to make this point. Paul is teaching about salvation in the first 14 verses of chapter 1 of Ephesians, he talks about this God, this Trinitarian salvation. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. He's saying that God the Father planned it. God the Son purchased it. And God the Holy Spirit keeps the promise. What I want you to come away with today, if I had a goal here, the end of this point, is this. The Bible teaches that salvation is only from God. I'm not trying to make you feel bad. I'm only trying to be biblical. You can't save yourself. I don't know who you, <clears throat> I don't know what's going on in your life. I don't know really how you feel. None of us really know who we really are. But if you're sitting there this morning, <clears throat> I've been in this position, thinking, well, I, I come to church and I try to be good in my family and I do this and I do that. You're trying to check boxes. And let me just tell you, your merits are like filthy rags to a holy God. So stop trying to save yourself through works. It does not work. You can't do good enough, long enough to be saved. You can't save yourself. There's a second person sitting here, maybe, <clears throat> who's saying, I don't know if God can save me. You, you, what do you mean? He saves you because he loves you. He, none of us can be saved if it was up to us. He didn't look out in the future and say, oh, there's Tim and he's going to come to faith based on what he's going to do. No, no, no. He, he looked out in the future and he said, us by name that have come to know him, oh, because I love Tim, I'm going to do everything in the world to bring salvation to him in Christ. It's nothing about us. And when I know I'm saved, there's some applications I'll get to next week. But when I know I'm saved, I can come in here and begin with the, with the doxology. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. What blessing? I'm saved. I'm going to heaven. When my life is over, heaven is my home. And until then, God's going to work in me and keep me and help me. Isn't that good news? Am I going to have trials? Absolutely. Is frustration going to come? Yes. Is there going to be really, really hard times? Yes. May it even mean my life? Yes. Stephen was stoned. Not as in the drug sense, but as in the killing sense. Stephen was stoned to death, and it took his life. But where was his blessings? Not in this earth. We need to stop thinking so much about here and now and start our focus upon there and then, 
It's about this audience of one that Julie's going to come and, and help us lead into worship. This morning, we're going to worship this good, good father, the one who saved us. And this morning, if these words are echoing in your heart that God's drawing you, let me just say this. The only way for you to be saved, to know that you are the elect of God, to be chosen, the only way for us to understand it is to come to this understanding that you can't save yourself, but God in his infinite wisdom and his glorious grace said that you can because of what his son did on the cross of Calvary. He paid the debt you couldn't pay. He bought you back from the slave market of sin. He set you free in Christ. And this morning, that's only possible if you will bow your knee not literally, but maybe figuratively, if you'll bend the will of your heart and if you will say, I'm not in control of my heart, but God, I'm responding to this message. I know I can't save myself and you can save me through what Jesus did on the cross of Calvary. And I'm putting all my hope and all of my claim and all my faith in that. And I need you to save me. I'll give you this promise. God will save you. Father, thank you this morning for your word. I pray that, as the Puritan said, there would be two preachers this morning, and I pray that people heard the preacher of the Holy Spirit. I pray as we sing that we would be like Paul, that we would be caught up in this doxology, that our hearts would be full of what Jesus has done for us, and that before the beginning of this world, you loved us and set us apart. I pray that you help us to understand that we are children of a king. And I pray this morning that we'll see the glorious grace that's only ours through the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Lamentations.